Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. Today, I will be responding in real time to an episode of Truth Unites. In this episode, Dr. Gavin Ortland is going to be talking about the Noahic Flood, the Flood of Noah. Now, I haven't seen his video yet on this. I haven't read any spoilers. I haven't heard any responses to it. I know nothing about it. I'm just going to go into this presentation fresh, and we'll see what I get out of it. Maybe it'll be entertaining. Maybe it'll be educational. Maybe it'll be something I agree with, disagree with, changes my mind, makes me makes me furious. I don't know. Let's see what happens when I go into this thing. Uh, let's go into this fresh. Now, why am I picking on Gavin again? Why am I picking on Dr. Ortland again? Is it because I hate him? Is it because I think he's a bad teacher? Is it because I think Christians shouldn't listen to him? Is it because he has the most compassionate smile and sparkling deep blue eyes? Is it all of these things together? In fact, no. On the contrary, I am bullying Gavin because I like his content. I learn a lot from his content. I very much respect his work. I respect his ironic approach. I respect his perfectly friendly smile. So I feel it is actually worth my time to listen to what he has to say and even to respond sincerely. I want him to succeed in his work. I want him to have the best possible theology as well as the best possible presentation of that theology. Now, of course, the solution everybody knows would just be Lutheran. But <laughs> in the meantime, let's, let's look at what Dr. Ortland has to say. Let's look at it uh, through the lens of Scripture, learning as much as I can, being as, uh, I don't want to say necessarily open-minded, but, but looking at it honestly, looking at it sincerely. What can I learn from this sort of thing? What, if I disagree with, what, you know, what can I contribute to the, to the conversation? All right. So again, I'm picking on Dr. Orlin because I like the guy and I like what he does. I also want to improve my own theology. And the way I, as a Lutheran, have improved my theology over the years is by asking questions, by sometimes even picking fights, by having conversations and arguments and disagreements with people. This is how I come to conclusions. This is how I best understand you know, every aspect of a theological concept is through argument, through argument, through argument, through discussion, through disagreement even. I think it's actually, it can be good to disagree and to talk about these things, to discuss these things. Now, in the last video of Gavin's that I responded to, the video where he talked, he has a couple videos. He talks about um, he talks about the six day creation, how long creation actually took, according to you know the different the different way you can read that that text. The first video he responds to Dr. Ken Ham, and uh, Dr. Ham, I, I suppose, uh, says something along the lines of, you know, you basically you're not Christian if you believe uh, in an old Earth view of creation. Um, and, and I didn't really disagree with Dr. Orland's uh, response. The first part of that video, I didn't disagree with his response. There, it was the second video that he put out that talked about kind of what he believed the text says that I found things to disagree about. Uh, so that was the last video that I did something like this. So in that last video, he talks about the age of the earth. The question I asked over and over, and see if you remember this, the question I asked over and over was, what in the text leads to your conclusion? What text led to your conclusion? Something along those lines. What in the Bible leads to your conclusion? If you're reading the Bible and you're reading the text. How would you read it in such a way that leads to your conclusion? How would the Bible, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna show show your work to a math problem, what is the work? What is the work in the text that leads to this conclusion? And I want to have that same that same question with this uh, with this video where he talks about if the flood is local or worldwide. 
Now, I truly believe that the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We don't need an infallible interpreter in order to get anything out of the Scripture. That God gave us His Word to enlighten our theology, not to obscure it. I think that a careful examination of the text is the best way to come to an accurate historical conclusion of events faithfully described in God's Word, specifically events uniquely observed by Christians, by faithful people. I believe that the Bible is the only infallible source of information about either creation or Noah's flood, so it should be the first place we look for truth to understand the situation, not the last. I believe that the Bible describes historical events like creation and the flood, which are miracles. And as such, as miracles, they don't need to conform to scientific explanation any more than any other miracle in Scripture. Think of walking in water, uh, walking on water, turning water into wine, things like that. I believe that miracles, by definition, defy natural processes as a way to demonstrate God's sovereignty. So as to approach any miracle, to look at it and say, how will this conform to a natural process? I cannot believe this miracle unless it conforms to a natural process at best is not appreciating what a miracle actually is, and at worst is a denial of God's sovereignty over nature. Because of this, I feel like the creation video, the second video that, in his response to Dr. Ham, the creation video by Dr. Orland, just like that, he and I will probably have very different conclusions of what took place during the flood. I believe in, <laughs> I believe in total immersion in the sense of the flood. In the case of the flood, I believe that total immersion... Uh, is what happened, that God baptized the whole earth with the cleansing waters of the flood, and as a result, the sin, the consequences of sin that were already being acted out on the earth, those were all touched by the flood. I believe that God might have used some natural antediluvian forces or elements in his miracle, calling up waters from the deep, from underground vaults of waters that either do or don't exist anymore, as well as maybe an ultra-saturated environment, the atmosphere, and potentially even some sort of watery firmament that is no longer present. I mean, the Bible describes this, this concept of a firmament, and it's kind of confusing because we're looking up in the sky and we're like, I don't, I don't see that thing that's being described here. It could very well be that this was something that was involved in the flood and has changed as a result of the flood, in the same way that perhaps somebody believes that the continents drifted apart from each other uh, as a result of tectonic shifts or flood or whatever. There's nothing, there's no reason to assume that the earth is in the exact same state now as it was before the flood. So if there were things that were involved in the flood that God used for the flood and that no longer exists, that's perfectly rational. In fact, that's what, honestly, we should kind of expect. But I also believe that God is still perfectly capable of flooding the entire earth without these potential natural elements being involved. All water was created from nothing at some point. There's nothing to prevent God from creating more water, having water come out of a rock where there is no water in the rock to begin with. It isn't necessary to provide a natural explanation to a worldwide flood any more than it is necessary or wise to provide a natural explanation for the resurrection from the dead. I don't, however, believe that this is a salvation issue, that a person's salvation and faith depends on whether or not they come to the correct conclusion about the flood, but I do believe that it is important to seek the truth regardless of whether or not it impacts your salvation. Further, that if the habit of trying to naturalize miracles is applied to certain miracles, like Christ's death and resurrection, for example, that something like that could lead to a belief that is incompatible with Christianity. If the Bible described a billion-year creation by saying six days, then the Bible describes a local flood by saying worldwide flood, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the Bible described a temporary medical condition when it said that Jesus 
died and rose three days later. So there has to be a limiting principle. There has to be a limiting principle for this hermeneutic. If you apply this approach to creation and to the flood, what limits, what prevents you from applying this same approach to the parting of the Red Sea? To Elijah calling down fire from heaven, for Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus' various healing miracles, Jesus dying and raising from the dead. Why is it that these, specifically these two miracles, should be explained naturalistically, and the Bible describes them non-literalistically, whereas the other miracles are safe from that hermeneutic? Where is the limiting principle? It is dangerous if you pick and choose which miracles have naturalistic understandings and whose text must be read non-literalistically to be true. If you aren't coming to your conclusion based on the text, but instead the text is expected to conform to the naturally limited conclusions you already hold, that's a problem. Where does that end? Where do you cease applying this, and why do you cease applying this? So to end the introduction, those are some of my beliefs, some of my concerns, and my question in this video will once again be what text led you to that conclusion? Here are some of the expectations I have for this video. Uh, again, not having seen it yet, and I could be completely wrong. First expectation, Dr. Orland will not come to a conclusion based on the text. He will not point to a scripture and say, this is how I came to my understanding of the flood. I read this verse, and I believe that this verse says this thing, therefore I believe this thing. Instead, I expect he will have been convinced of a theory from external means, and then he looks at the text and tries to find a way to make that theory work with the text, or rather, find a way to make that text accommodate or allow for that theory. This is kind of what happened in the creation, in the creation understanding, is he didn't look at the text and said, the text said this, therefore I believe it. Rather, he looked at the text and says, can the text allow for these different theories? Not what led him to his theory, but can the text be read in such a way that allows for this belief that I have from whatever other source, can the text be read in such a way that it allows for me to hold that belief? The better way to do this, I believe, is to read the text and start off with the belief that this text is true. It is an accurate historical explanation of what happened. Then you take any outside theories and see if there is a way that they can be understood in such a way that is compatible with the text, the text being the thing that is not changed or not doubted. For example, we know that the creation of the world is a miracle. How can the appearance of age, seen in ice or layers of rock or impact craters on moons of Jupiter, how can the appearance of age seen in these things, or, you know, photons from stars, how can this be seen in such a way that this results from a miraculous creation? Now, as I explained in the previous video, very easily it turns out. Another concerned expectation I have is a troubling hermeneutic. This belief that the Bible could not be understood until we, in our modern brilliance, discovered all of the science through which we are supposed to be reading the Bible. An example of a similar use of this hermeneutics might be something like transubstantiation in the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics would believe that you cannot understand the verses in the Bible that talk about, you know, this is my body, unless you first understand Aristotelian metaphysics. You have to have the brilliant philosophical understanding of Aristotle first before you can understand what Christ says about the Last Supper. C.S. Lewis talks about something he calls chronological snobbery. This is the idea that people in the past were just inherently more stupid, incapable of understanding, you know, complex things that we understand now. Now, in this case, God would have to only communicate to them in vague metaphors and allegorical phrases that, that only their intellectual superiors, us now in the 21st century, that only their intellectual superiors thousands of years later could understand. 
but that dumb Bronze Age farmer would be too stupid to get it if God just told him the direct truth. God wouldn't even bother trying to accurately describe things like creation and the flood because, you know, people in the past were just dumb. The alternative to God thinking that people are too stupid to understand the science he relies on for his miracles is that God is just a bad communicator. Again, I'm sure Dr. Ortland would point out many people came to many different interpretations of the text throughout history, and I still have absolutely no idea how, for example, Augustine came to his conclusion, uh, his theory of the timeline of creation. But to assume that all of this text is so confusing language, rather than we should attempt to, to find the plain reading of the text, but rather we should assume that God is just incapable of conveying history in a way that people can understand. He can't help it. He can't help saying six days when he means 600 billion years. He can't help but saying the whole earth when he means this localized process. God is just bad at communicating. This is another possible conclusion as to why the text is just so confusing to read that it couldn't be the plain understanding. Now, these aren't the only two ways, these aren't the only two conclusions that you can have, that either people are too stupid so God had to use crazy language to describe stuff, that they were just too dumb to understand, or that God is a bad communicator. But these are two of the ones that make the most sense. If you're saying, well, God wrote this Bible and we need an infallible interpreter because if, you know, if people look at this text, they'll just come to the wrong conclusions all the time. God's word is not a light to your foot and, and a light to your path. It is obscure. It is confusing. Uh, or the language is all meant to be read in such a way that you have uh, a brilliant understanding of ancient Near East mythologies and, and, and Aristotelian metaphysics and, you know, a knowledge of all the impact craters on the, uh, on the surface of Jupiter or, or stuff. It, it, it takes away the ability and the intent of God to communicate things in the text, and instead it relies on your own brilliance to fill in the gaps for God's failure in communication. Here's the thing. It's one thing to say God said the earth was made in six days and Augustine came up with a theory that was actually instantaneous creation followed by six billion years of maturation. The reality is that theologians all the time, and you know, maybe they're right, uh, they're not necessarily wrong, theologians all the time read the text and come up with these grand conclusions uh, vaguely relating to the text. That one is on Augustine. If he reads the text and he comes up with a conclusion that doesn't seem to fit in the text, but he just has a conclusion. It's another thing entirely to say that God didn't know how to describe time, or that he chose, he did know how to describe time, he did know how to describe locality, but he chose to be intentionally vague by using words that have a clear meaning. Six days has a clear meaning. The earth, the whole world, this has a clear meaning. That he intentionally used confusing language in order to convey information that must at best be guessed at. Well, you know, you're reading the text, and you're saying, well, the text doesn't lead this conclusion, but I'm guessing it means this other thing that is not supported at all in the text, but is, in fact, the true reading of the text. So, if God says he flooded the entire earth, let's say multiple times in Scripture, sure, you could have theologians come up with a wild and wacky theory about how you're supposed to read that text in the most obscure way possible. And in fact, you could have some, some pretty interesting theories that connected to, to baptism and these other things that they may, in fact, be true, even though not explicitly stated in Scripture. But it's a different accusation against God to say that he could have easily described a local flood, but he either was unable or unwilling to do so, and instead he chose to intentionally use language that directly meant worldwide. So the one last thing I'd like to do before getting into Gavin's video about the flood is actually to read the Bible. What does the Bible say happened for Noah's flood. 
I'll be reading from the ESV, Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, verse 17, just so we cover everything. I'll try to go quickly. Genesis chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took their wives any that they chose. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will dis destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you were to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third deck. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you should bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen you, that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, all male and a mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went to the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, any bird and of everything that creeps upon the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature that went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in.
The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose upon the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven. They were blotted out from heaven. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Chapter 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow on the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, and the waters continued to abate on, until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot when she returned out of the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, but again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Go and bring with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that he may swarm on the earth, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, he and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with them. So every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the invention of man's heart is evil from its youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold, heat and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird in heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And your lifeblood I will recover for a reckoning from every beast I will recover it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his image. 
and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So that's the reading. That's Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9 verse 17. Now, to me, this seems to describe a flood over the whole earth. It involves all the animals, all the living things on the earth. Everything at least that has the breath of life in its nostrils. So it wouldn't necessarily mean like trees or whatever. A flood that affects every living thing on the whole earth. And a covenant that follows the flood that also affects every living thing on the entire earth from then onward. Additionally, this, pl- this flood prefigures the final day where God will once again destroy the whole earth for the new creation. All of these things together, the direct and simple meaning of the text, the impact of the flood, the covenant following the flood, and the prefigurement of the destruction of the whole world all point to this being a worldwide event. The whole earth, the highest mountains to, you know, the ground. So, with all of this in mind, let's see what Gavin has to say about the text. In this video, I want to address whether the flood of Noah was local or global. So, did it cover the entire planet or just some large territory in Mesopotamia? As controversial as this topic is, believe me, I, I, I'm aware. <laughs> uh, and we'll, let, we'll have a respectful working it through. I'll read your comments very carefully. But I've made a personal resolution to never shy away from topics that fit with the goal of my channel, which is to help people feel peace and assurance in the gospel. And that means talking through these difficult issues that cause people anxiety. This is definitely one of them, partly because of the disagreements that happen within the body of Christ, but also because of the contempt that comes upon us from secular critics like this one. I don't know about the elephants on Noah's Ark, but the elephant in the room in 2014 is that we are now a full four centuries removed from the scientific revolution. Four centuries after Copernicus, after the time humans realized that through science, we could actually get a real answer to almost every question about our world, like where does the sun go at night? Does love exist? What are numbers? What is consciousness? Metaphysical truths, I don't know. Bill Mary doesn't think his, <laughs> think his thoughts all the way through. And why does disease spread so quickly on a cruise ship? <laughs> and speaking of cruise ships, you know, I don't mind that the Noah story is impossibly childish. Okay, I do mind. I, what am I saying? I mind very much. I mean, seriously, people, you believe a man, Noah, lived to be 900 years old. That's what the Bible says. And when he was 500, he decided to have three kids, just like Clint Eastwood. (laughs) 
And when he was 600, he and his three 100-year-old sons <laughs> built a boat onto which, in one day, they loaded over three million animals, all of which were apparently indigenous to within five miles of the boat. <laughs> But get this, what the Christian... It's hilarious. It's stupid and, and completely ignorant of what the Bible actually says. But it is, he, he is funny. He is, he's putting forth a, a funny straw man. Um, who's to say that all the, all the animals only started moving, you know, within whatever, five miles? Who's to say how long God had the animals moving and God had been planning this flood, planning to save all the animals on the ark? And, you know, furthermore... Yeah, is it childish to believe that miracles are miraculous, that they defy the laws of nature, that they defy the processes of science? If if Dr. Orland is ashamed by this yuku, uh, if this if this is the reason why Dr. Orland is concerned that the Bible describes miracles as, wait for it, miraculous, then respectfully, that you should not be ashamed of your faith. You should not be ashamed of uh, of what the gospel tells you, what the what the Bible tells you. Yeah, guess what? You're going to get laughed out of the room when you say that God became man, died on the cross for the sins of mankind, and rose from the tomb later. If if you think that that an atheist considering Noah's Ark childish is reason enough for you to to be concerned, and you need to find a way to appease this man's worldview. I mean, just wait until he finds out what happened with Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is not a good reason to doubt the to doubt to doubt the message of Scripture as 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 accurate or literalistic. Christians who are now protesting this movie are upset about is that it doesn't take the biblical story literally enough. <gasps> They're mad because this made-up story doesn't stay true to their made-up story. <laughs> So I have basically two motives or goals for this video. First is an apologetics goal. I just want to try to help Christians feel a little bit more equipped to respond to criticisms like that. I've known a lot of people walk away from their faith in relation to this topic and others like it. Maybe some of you watching this video feel you're in that place. Now, respectfully, before he actually gets into the details of what he's going to provide, respectfully, the solution to dealing with you know atheist critics like Bill Maher and Bill Maher, whatever. Uh, is not to find something that, that appeals to them, that convinces them, oh yes, I as an atheist now believe all the events of the Bible because you explained it in such a way that it's naturally, naturally even possible. That's not the solution. That's, faith is not an intellectual ascent. Faith is not, okay, I'm an atheist, but now I'm smart enough and I figure this out so now I can believe and I won't hold Christians in derision. Guess what? You Christians are going to be held in derision no matter what from atheists. It does not matter how coherent, how much proof you have, how much of an explanation you can give. Apologetics is not a means to, to say, okay, well, let's just not pay attention to these, you know, these uncomfortable truths of the Bible. Apologetics is a, is a way to convey the truth of the Bible. And sometimes the truth of the Bible is, guess what? Miracles happened. And your scientific explanation of these events is incorrect, especially in the case when miracles do happen. You should not shy away from the truth of Scripture because the miraculous is not naturalistically uh, explainable. The second goal is kind of a unity goal. I want to try to help us think through our differences within the body of Christ 
in a peaceable way with more understanding of one another and a sense of proportion and, and wisdom about you know, that's those two things are right at the core of truth unites with what I hope this YouTube channel is accomplishing apologetics and kind of triage and unity and thinking through these important <laughs> secondary and tertiary doctrines though this one is really important I'm not minimizing it now I'm not going to deal with the morality of this story like is God immoral for killing people and that kind of thing that's a really important thing Bill Mar and others talk about that as well. I'll have other videos later in this year that really get into some of those questions, slavery in the Bible, the conquest of Canaan, really tough topics I'm going to address. In this video, I just want to address one very specific question, and that's the extent of the flood. Was it local or global? And that question is obviously important for how we respond to Bill Maher, but also how we talk to each other in the church. Is that question answered by the Bible? That's what I want to know. Is the flood local or global? And what does the Bible say? Because we know that the Bible is true. So I'm curious to see if, if, if what in the text leads to your conclusion. I'll put that out there. Here's my thesis. The biblical text can be responsibly read as describing a local flood, <sighs> and therefore both a local flood inter... Okay, here we go. Um... This is, uh, <laughs> I must be Nostradamus because I had this prediction right from the offset. He's not going to talk about what the Bible says. He's not going to talk about a conclusion that the Bible leads to. He's going to talk about the Bible in such a way, well, we can read the Bible in such a way that it allows for this belief that I already have. That is not how you do hermeneutics. You don't look at the Bible and say, well, this is a secondary thing. Let's understand the universe first through Bill, Bill Maher's scientific explanation first. And then we have to look at the Bible in such a way that allows for my belief that comes from outside of the script scripture, and in fact, some sources that are frequently contrary to the scripture. Again, Bill Maher's explanation is that this is childish for you to believe these miraculous things. So for you to fall for his explanation first and then say, well, how do I read the Bible in such a way that Bill Maher would be okay with it? Ugh, that is not, not the right foot to start off on. What in the text leads to your conclusion should be how you do this, but I'll let him continue. He's, he's got a doctorate and I do not. Uh, he's also got many more years of experience dealing with this stuff than I do. And he's smarter. And he's got nicer eyes. Interpretation, as well as a, a global flood interpretation, are orthodox. Whichever one is right and wrong, they're both legitimately Christian. In other words, this isn't an, an orthodoxy versus heresy issue. Now, Agreed. I know that some of my... Maybe orthodoxy versus heterodoxy, not orthodoxy versus heresy. Having the wrong belief on this issue does not make somebody not a Christian or outside of the Christian faith. I agree. As much as my non-Christian viewers might be thinking that any kind of historical flood is just crazy to believe in, and I'll address that question at the end, a lot of my Christian viewers might be thinking, why would you even entertain the idea of a local flood? It's completely obvious that the Bible's describing a global flood, and I can kind of understand and sympathize with this immediate reaction. Uh, if you start reading through Genesis 6 to 8, you stumble upon references to all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth, the face of all the earth, all the high mountains under the whole heaven, and lots of other uh, little phrases and language like this that sounds, especially on just on at face value in English translation, it sounds very universal. But if I could just make a plea for people to hear my case here, um, if you end up disagreeing that's totally fine, and I'll consider your perspective, but I would just invite you to hear my arguments first before you make up uh, whether your mind whether you disagree with me or not, because this is surprisingly complicated. 
So the structure of this video is first three lightning quick clarifications just about what it means to talk about a local flood. Second, two arguments for why that's a responsible reading of the text. And then third, a defense of the flood story as a true account of a historical event. Okay, diving in, three quick clarifications about what is this proposal of a local flood. Number one, local does not necessarily mean small. It just means it didn't cover the entire planet. So a lot of times people will say, you know, well, if it was local, why do you even need an ark? <laughs> why do you just move out of the way, you know? <laughs> and uh, a lot of people think that the flood was large and sudden and calamitous, but they simply think it doesn't concern Greenland and Japan and the South Pole and so forth. I mean, that is a legitimate concern. If which which would have been easier for God to do to pick up Noah and his family, eight people in all, and move them to Greenland? I mean, just saying, well, it's it's not a small area, it's a larger area. If it is a localized flood, why would God move all of the animals onto the ark rather than the reverse of just I mean, he could just make the ark and pick it up and move it somewhere else. He could just pick up the eight people and move them somewhere else. He could he could remove the people from the situation of, of the area of calamity, let's say, the area of the flood. Because after all, it doesn't cover the whole earth. No matter how big it is, let's say it covers everything except for, I don't know, um, Japan. <laughs> just pick an island. It covers everything except for Hawaii. You do have to kind of by complicating the text and making it a local flood, now you've introduced the question of, okay, well, God could have just moved him to Hawaii if he flooded the entire earth except for Hawaii. Like, first of all, why did he only pick part of it? Second of all, why did he not just move the eight people instead of moving however many thousands of animals onto the, onto the ark? You know, that's just, the more you, the more you complicate the text, the more complicated it gets. You, who would have thought? Second clarification, local does not necessarily mean that it, the flood didn't wipe out all human beings outside the ark. Some people think that, others don't. This is before the dispersion of humanity in Genesis 11 at the Tower. That is weird. Um, um, that, yeah, I, you know, now that he mentions it, I, got, I guess I hadn't thought about it for a while. That I, I think I have run into some people who claim that, you know, that God didn't actually kill all the people with the flood, that there are some people who survived um, outside of outside of the floodwaters, like the descendants of the Nephilim, like Goliath's family or whatever is descendants of the Nephilim or something like that. That God only flooded some people. Again, completely contrary to the text that God killed some people and not all people, but, I mean, it was from the eight, of course. That God killed some of the people on the face of the earth and not uh, all the people on the face of the earth, but it, it, I've heard people bring it up before, so it's, yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about that uh, recently. <laughs> of Babel. So the flood story is roughly Genesis 6 through 8. Chapter 9 is relevant. It's talking about Noah as well. So we're here in kind of that first section, the primeval history of Genesis. And this is before humanity had been spread out uh, after the Tower of Babel. So lots to get into there, but I'm just pointing out you don't have to say a local flood means only a, one portion of humanity. So for an example of someone who believes in a local flood, but one that is still universal with respect to human civilization, check out the ministry Reasons to Believe. And uh, Hugh Ross has done a lot of work on the flood story. That Keep in mind, uh, the Bible doesn't just talk about all the humans were killed. It says every living creature that crawls on the face of the earth and whose nostrils were the breath of life. So if you want to say, well, there's a local flood to kill all the humans, you also have to say all the animals of the entire earth all were localized in whatever locale you're limiting the flood to. 
organization does a lot of great ministry, a lot of great evangelism, great apologetics, and he's a very good proponent of that view. So I'll put a link to some things that he's done on this topic, uh, that, uh, and I just encourage you to, to, to learn about that perspective. Third, local versus global is not a matter of the truth or historicity of the event. I just want to be really clear on this, because sometimes people misunderstand this. Um, I believe that I believe in a historical event that is truly being recorded in the Bible. It really happened. It's a trustworthy account we have. Did it happen in the way that the Bible recorded is a good question. Have in Genesis, that's not the issue here. The issue I'm addressing here is the extent of the water, just that specific issue. Was it local or global? And basically, I just want to dive in and give two reasons why I think it may have been local. And even though I think the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of that and against a global flood, these aren't really scientific arguments. I'm going to make primarily biblical arguments that they make a broader appeal. This is, this is actually a really good point, and I appreciate that he, that he makes this distinction. Although, again, I do believe that there is, there's plenty of uh, evidence, evidentiary evidence. Um, again, if you're, if you're, if you're going to try to understand a passive bit, you don't do the scientific method. Scientific method only, observe, only deals with the observable, the repeatable, the predictable, those which are em empirically you can deal with. Things that happened in the past, you deal, with a his, uh, you deal with history, you deal with the evidentiary method. I do think, I mean... I don't know from the things that I've I've seen presented. Uh, I think that there's plenty of evidence for a worldwide uh, a worldwide effect uh, of of this flood and plenty of continents around the world. So it'd be interesting to see like what scope he limits the flood to. One question I have already is why? Like, what is the reason you have to accommodate a local flood? I know you mentioned at the beginning that you know being laughed out of the room by Bill Maher Bill Maher is is a concern for some Christians and this can cause people to lose their faith if the Bible's description of miracles doesn't conform to the world's current present understanding of natural processes, which I think is not, you're dealing with the wrong issue there. You're never going to have a miracle conform to natural processes by definition. But, but why, why do you have to, why would you want to, why would you choose to limit, um, uh, limit the flood to local? I mean, if nothing in the text says local, this is the prediction I'm going to make that he never once presents a text that suggests it's local only presents ways of reading the text that a, that allow for him to already believe that it's local and still say that the text is correct. Why? Why? What leads you to this conclusion? And why would you need to allow for it in the text? Uh, because I'm not a scientist, and I'll just keep it focused on the Scripture. I think from the Scripture alone, you can make a pretty good case. So here's my two arguments. Number one, the same language used in Genesis 6 through 8 that seems so universal is used for local regions all the time throughout the Bible. So the phrase, the whole earth, comes from the Hebrew word eretz, meaning land or country or earth or ground, lots of different ways you can translate it. And then the word kol, meaning all or every. Eretz is used over 2,500 times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's translated earth about one-fourth of the time. The phrase kol eretz, all the earth or all the land or all the country, is used about 207 times, and only in about 40 of those might it mean all of planet earth. So this is, this is good. Um, so, for example, you could say that the word earth also refers to dirt, and it doesn't always refer to the planet earth. 
Um, or you can say, I, have, I firmly have my feet firmly placed on the earth. And I'm not referring to the entire planet. I'm not standing the entire planet. I'm just standing on a small section of the planet. The difficulty you're going to have to come into with the translation is that you have all of these things together. All of these, all the animals, everything that has a breath of life over all the earth, over all the mountains, over all, you know, all of these things together. So you can't just say, well, you know, the word earth can be translated to mean dirt or it can be translated to mean the planet. Uh, in isolation. You have to deal with the entirety of the text. That's why I read such a large chunk from Genesis 6 through 9. Uh, you have to deal with the text altogether. Context, context, context. This is how you determine the meaning of a lot of, a lot of the words in the, te in the text. So, for example, the, the word yam for day. Um, it can mean in the day of our Lord versus on the king's birthday. Uh, but if you have something in the text that says evening and morning, you know it's talking about a literal day. Whereas if you say, you know, and the day lasted uh, 100 years while the king was alive, it stands for era. So in this case, yes, there are different meanings of the individual word, even the two words together, all earth, the phrase, uh, but you have to deal with all the text together. What is, what is the conclusion based on all the text together? We'll see if he, if he goes on to deal with that. In the majority of cases, by a pretty wide margin, coal arets often has, usually has a local referent. Now, sometimes you know that because of a qualifier. So, for example, in the first two occurrences of this phrase in the Bible, Genesis 2, 11, and 13, you have the whole land of Havilah and the whole land of Cush. But even without the qualifier, this is the common meaning. So, years ago, Rich Deem wrote an article that listed 56 examples of kol arets having a local referent in the Hebrew Bible. I'll put up on the screen the first 10 in canonical order. Uh, and then on this screen, and then I'll put the next five on the next screen. You can pause and read through these if you want. Already you can tell, like, you know, a, a translation like in the land is gives you a very different kind of flavor of meaning than on the earth. But just to give maybe two examples to dive in, Genesis 41, 57 says, All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, we don't have to conclude that people from northern Siberia traveled down to the Middle East, and the ancient Mayans beat Christopher Columbus to the punch in sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. Unless, in this case, if you're going to make this comparison, you've got all the earth, and, and really, you know, maybe that means... Uh, so that's more convincing, the, the, the Egypt thing we're talking about, really the people we're dealing with overall, all the land of the people we're dealing with is, is probably more likely the meaning of that text. In contrast the text in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 not only is repeated all the earth all the earth all the earth higher than the mountains uh, but it also describes how many creatures were involved everything that crawls on the face of the earth and whose nostrils were the breath of life is not the same as you know and 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 in all the land and all the people in the land came to see the king and his wonderful bride on the wedding day or something like that. You know, that's one thing. It's another thing to say all the people, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the earth, everyone, everything in whose nostrils were the breath of life. Again, if you read it in the context of how many times this is repeated and how many different ways God possibly said the entire earth. I mean, this is the question that I asked in the, in the creation video. If I, I think I asked, I hope I asked it. If God meant to communicate the entire earth, how would he have done it differently than what he actually put in the text of Genesis chapter 6 through 9? 
if if he meant to communicate the entire earth uh, in Genesis six through nine, he, he repeats it multiple times, and he and he describes it as you know the living place of every creature in whose nostrils was the breath of life, and he connects it with a covenant that connects it to every single creature afterwards and and every creature beforehand, uh, and he describes you know higher than the mountains and all this other thing. Again, if God was to try to describe an entire worldwide flood. How would he have done it differently? What would you have expected to be done differently other than him using all the words and all the phrases he already used? So let's go. Goshen and Aboriginal Australians made their way across <laughs> India or the Indian Ocean to make it to the Middle East. I'm, I'm going to give lots of specific examples throughout this video. In no way am I trying to poke fun at an alternative view. I'm just trying to be specific. No, leave that to me. <laughs> with what this would mean. So when it says all the earth is afflicted by this famine and they come to Egypt, no one really interprets it, meaning literally like all of planet earth. And this is pretty recurrent all throughout the Hebrew Bible. First Kings 10, 24, when the whole earth comes to Solomon to hear his wisdom, we, we don't, we're not required to think that people came from Canada and Brazil and East Asia and so forth to learn from Solomon. Unless the word specifically says that it includes everybody in whose nostrils were the breath of life. You know, that might, that might mean literally the whole earth. And that's true for that, the phrase kol eretz, all the earth, but also the other phrases in Genesis 6 through 8 that might seem universal initially, but then you see all throughout the Hebrew Bible, they're used for a local referent. Like the phrase under the whole heaven in Deuteronomy 2.25 doesn't mean that people like Native Americans in the United States at that time are afraid of Moses. But it does mean that anybody who would encounter them, anyone on the entire face of the earth, would have been afraid of, uh, of, of Moses and the people. Uh, the people, anyone that, that he would have interacted with. Um, the contrary understanding of that verse would be that that God made Moses and the Israelites a, a force to be reckoned with, but only to those locals. And if whatever, the aboriginals or, or whatever other people you think existed on the earth, if these people uh, came up to, to Moses and the Israelites, that they would be unfazed, that is an incorrect reading of the text. Uh, when Elijah is told in 1 Kings 18 that there's no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you, we're not required to think of Ahab's spies going up into Scandinavia, various islands in the world where there's human civilization, and so forth. So it's also not God describing the entire world as he is in Genesis. Basically what I'm trying to do so far is just appeal to context, in this case the, the rest of the Hebrew Bible, to show this kinds of... In this case, the rest of the Hebrew Bible, but he actually removes context by saying, let's focus on the words and see how they're used in isolation in different examples, rather than looking at the context of the event itself and seeing how the words and the phrases connect to each other. The whole earth and every creature in whose nostrils were the breath of life and all the mountains and all this other stuff. That's the context you need to focus on first. You, you look at the context, the initial context, and then the context around that, and then the context around that, and then, and then you expand to, you know, how is this word used in other places? But you start, with, you start with the smallest kind of variables, the closest variables first. That's how you, that's how you understand the text. If you, under, if you want to understand how many uh, days were in creation, how many years or whatever were in creation, start with the local text first, the small text first, then expand your understanding outside. Eventually you can get to your ancient Near East myths or, you know, pagan expectations of what creation was like, but start with what's closest to the text for context. In this case, 
the phrases and how they connect to each other and all seem to point to a worldwide event. So kind of language has a lot of precedent for having a local reference. Now, then we can just ask, you know, why would that be? Why would they talk like this? And here we just have to try to submit ourselves to what the scripture is trying to communicate rather than immediately make us say, ah, if I could just make an appeal for humility in how we read the Bible. We're reading an English translation with a modern understanding of planet Earth as a round globe orbiting the sun between Venus and Mars. So when we hear certain language, you know, we're going to bring a lot to the table in terms of how we interpret that language. The biblical writers and the... Again, this works both ways. So if your understanding of the language is um, colored by your understanding of what is naturally and scientifically possible, it might skew your interpretation to say, well, how can I read this in such a way that Bill Maher won't laugh at it? Again, this cuts both ways. Original readers were not aware of the South Pole or Alaska or New Zealand. But they would have known what the Earth is. It, I'm sorry, this is, the, this is what I said in my expectation, my preface statement, this uh, chronological snobbery of, well, they're too dumb to, yes, there are things that we discovered later on and they understand better later on. And, and um, you know, the planets and all, you know, the way the organization of, of the universe, the galaxy is, is something that we discovered later on. But this is a bold assumption to make to say, well, you know, the people, because they didn't understand what the North Pole was, they didn't have a fully mapped out planet yet. They couldn't possibly know what uh, the earth was. Therefore, we have to read it through stupid eyes, through ignorant eyes, rather than the belief that God communicated pure, clear and direct truth with people who did not have a full understanding that he could have talked about the entire world, even if they hadn't, they don't have a map, a Google map of the entire world yet. It is possible that God speaks truth to people who don't understand it fully yet. Uh, King was it King Ahab or Ahaz or whatever, I get it confused, uh, him, him being told that the virgin will conceive and, and bear his son, uh, and then you find out all these details later on about Jesus and born in Bethlehem and all these other things. God spoke direct and honest truth to somebody who did not have access to the full picture. He does that regularly. On the contrary, how regularly does God dumb it down for people? How regularly when God is communicating uh, truth in the Bible does God say, well, you're too stupid to understand this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use language you do understand. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but this is, this is a pretty bold assertion, uh, assumption to, to make that, well, we have to read the text um, as though people didn't understand what the world was. Yeah. So they would have absolutely no reason to use language that would reflect entities that they didn't know existed. They were just using the ordinary language of the time to refer to the known world. And that's completely natural for people back then to speak like that. When we say all the earth, we just... Sure, but what in the text leads you to that conclusion? Not the word can mean something else in a different place in the Bible. What in the text leads you to the conclusion that God actually meant the local known world? Just mean all the earth we've ever known, you know? And so art. <laughs> oh boy. Um, I had a, I was, I was going to make a reference to the Roman Catholic church and, you know, well, 
obviously Jesus said, you know, you were Peter and on this rock, I will build my, build my church. And, you know, we later on with our brilliance, understand the magisterium understands that really he was talking about infallibility and apostolic succession and all these other things that we're totally not reading into the text. This just, this, this smacks a bit of, of, of that, that you're, he's kind of reading into the text, this whole local, localized understanding thing. Really God meant local flood. It was like, really God meant you are the, the seat of Peter. You are the Pope. Really? It's like, those are, those are dangerous games to play. Um, and other people in other denominations have played them. And I'm pretty sure you don't agree with their conclusions there. So being consistent about this would lead to conclusions you don't like task in reading the scripture is to submit to what the original author meant submit and how the to original Rome. hearers received. the original author meant that peter would be the pope submit to that yes it doesn't say it in the text but submit to it because we understand now that the people back then would have understood that you know i give you the keys of the kingdom it was really about being able to create it's a jewish phrase that means you can create laws and you can create ordinances and it was like, oh come on man received <laughs> the text that is where meaning is furnished and actually it's so one way we respect the scripture is we submit to what it intends to say where in the text does it indicate this is local where what in submit follow your own advice submit to what the text is intending to say what in the text even suggests this is local? Rather than kind of immediately uh, draw it into our horizon of concerns and all our modern questions. And our modern understanding of science and, and natural processes and not wanting to uh, be mocked by Bill Maher. Bill Maher. I'm going to say this guy's name like wrong so many times. <laughs> Any of which the Bible actually isn't addressing directly. Mm. Even in the New Testament you'll find comprehensive language to refer to the known world, the Mediterranean world. Colossians 1.6, the gospel bearing fruit in the whole world. Well, we know that, you know, the American continents hadn't been evangelized yet. Acts 2.5 says there were dwelling in Jerusalem uh, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and then the nations are listed, and it does and in Genesis 6 through 9, it says the whole earth, the whole earth, uh, every animal and whose nostrils were the breath of life. Yes, yes. Different examples use words in different meanings. So this is why you derive the meaning from the, from the, local, the local context. It doesn't include places like Brazil and Japan None of this and so forth. contributes to the now, understanding one factor of that supports Genesis. this way of thinking in Genesis 6 through 8 that we're not thinking globally so much as the known world is Genesis 10, which comes right after, and the, uh, the so-called table of nations, this is that listing text. all of the different nations that are descended from That's Noah and his sons, and they're all local. They're talking primarily about the Middle East, you know, extending outward a bit into Asia and Africa and Europe, but we're not talking about Australia and Mexico and Northern Europe and so forth. Yeah, it's talking about the descendants of the people who were in that area and how they s spread out. Like, why, w unless you believe that God is like dropping people down in Australia or whatever, like, why would you expect that? This is such a weird take. Maybe I'm mis I, I must be misunderstanding this. Okay, let me let me open up Genesis chapter chapter ten. What is he talking about? 
Nations descended from Noah. These are generations of Noah. Yeah, sons were so many names. Sons of Cush, Egypt, put in Canaan. Okay. Okay. In their nations, and these nations spread out abroad the earth after the flood. Y yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Noah was in a localized place. The His family was in a local place, so you would expect the families to spread out from that single pinpoint location. Like, eight people on the ark, and then they probably lived close to each other, and they probably spread out from there. Like, this is so bizarre. Like, a, I don't, this this is weird. This is so backwards. Because I, I, I must, I'm going to re rewind, because I must not be understanding that right. That is a strange argument the way I heard it men from every nation under heaven and then the nations are listed and it doesn't include places like brazil and japan and so yeah, forth yeah, yeah. now one factor that supports this way of thinking in genesis okay. 6 through 8 that we're not thinking globally so much as the known world is genesis 10 which comes right after and the uh, the so-called table of nations this is listing all of the different nations that are descended from noah and his sons and they're all local they're talking primarily about the middle Yes, they are local. The people spread out later on the earth. Like, I'm not sure what is his assumption that Australian stuff existed. Like, there was a nation of Australia right after the flood. Why is this doesn't support his? This doesn't support his statement at all. I don't get how this contributes to his understanding at all. Yes, it's local. Yeah. Because the family was local, and as they spread out, they kind of, you know, furthermore, <laughs> the Bible doesn't really deal that much with, uh, it, it, deals, it deals with kind of a centralized area. Most of the events in the Bible happen in a centralized area. Now, there are other countries mentioned, and people come from other, you know, from afar or whatever. But the Bible really focuses on following around a, a group of people and a, and a certain lineage of people and people that they interacted with. So his belief that the flood is local being informed by the fact that the people who got off the ark first started having kids in a local area, it's, it doesn't make sense. Yes, they spread out over the face of the earth. I mean, there was the Tower of Babel. They, got, they, got, they spread out after that. But um, I'm not sure why. Why would he expect this to include like India and Australia and stuff like that. It doesn't, it's non sequitur to me. I, get, I, I must not be understanding him because that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it's local because at, there were eight people on the ark and then as they slowly spread out of the earth, it spreads out from a local point. So there isn't like, boom, all of a sudden every, you know, there's the United States of America and the Bible doesn't mention the United States of America in the chapter after the flood because the flood was local. That does not follow. That, so that can't, that can't be what he means. Middle East, you know, extending outward a bit into Asia and Africa and Europe, but we're not talking about Australia and Mexico and Northern Europe and so forth. Yeah, they and got that there provides eventually. more support for thinking that the the sphere of awareness of the biblical authors was more limited. They were just using. It's like saying because we don't have people living on the moon right now, uh, we don't know the moon exists, or it's, like it doesn't make sense, Kevin.
that does not follow. <laughs> yes, there. Are, you know, it doesn't mention it doesn't mention the the tribes who will live on on Mars. You know, hundred years in the future, because maybe there's nobody living there yet. It doesn't mean the flood was local because nobody's moved there yet. It doesn't mean the creation for like if we applied this to creation, well, God didn't create Mars until people lived there. It's like, no, it's a, this is so strange. It does. I I. I, I don't see how I'm under, misunderstanding this, but um, it it doesn't make sense what he's saying. So I must I must be misunderstanding this somehow. There's just there's no way that that follows in that direction. I'll, I'll keep going. <laughs>